I've had to reinvent myself about three times since my teens. First, I was a professional cartoonist, and then I was a journalist, and then I became a philosopher, and then I had to enter into the literary world um, as an English professor at the University of Washington. Some people, you know, would read, oh, that I was a cartoonist, but they didn't see the work. Um, but it's a lot of work, really, over 50 years. Was it a case of time to put away childish things, as they say, and be taken more seriously? I think that uh, graphic arts and comic arts have been very important for our culture, especially pop culture, and can be very serious as forms of expression. Uh, so, no, uh, cartooning and drawing are definitely not childish things at all. Uh, my heroes are really more our visual artists than sometimes our literary artists. I wanted to talk a little bit about specifically in your very early days of doing this, you um, you got the attention or I guess made yourself known among a, a, a couple of fairly prominent artists and cartoonists. Um, how did you connect with Lord Slarier initially? I initially wrote him a letter uh, when I was in high school because I was talking to my dad about what I was going to do with my future. And I said, Dad, you know, I get great grades in art, and that's what I'm going to be. I'm going to be an artist. And my father, you know, came from a different era, and he said to me, Chuck, you can't do that. They don't let black people do things like that. And that was not acceptable to me. So I was a reader of Writer's Digest because they had profiles on my heroes who were cartoonists. And Larrier had an ad in one of the issues. He taught a course. And it said also that he published 100 books. So I wrote to him. And I said, this is what my dad told me. Do you agree with this? And he wrote me back in a week. A week. I didn't expect to hear back from him. And his reply was, your father is wrong. You can do anything you want as long as you have a good teacher. And I wrote him back and I said, will you be my teacher? And he said, yeah, but you got to pay for my course. Well, I showed the letter to my dad, who changed his mind because he didn't know anything about black art. Uh, at the time, and he paid for my two years. It's about two years of lessons with Larrier. I finished in 1965 when I was 17 and began publishing and doing illustrations professionally uh, for a magic uh, company catalog in Chicago, drew all the way through high school, um, got a couple of uh, second-place awards for a strip that I did in a panel, um, and then I continued for seven intense years. Uh, working every possible market that a cartoonist could mark in the late 60s. So Lawrence Larrier specifically, you know, reading up on him and familiarizing myself with him a bit, um, after having learned that you connected with him early on, he seemed to be very good in terms of supporting Black artists, which I think was probably quite a rarity among, you know, the more prominent artists back then. Was that something that you were aware of when you initially wrote him that letter? No, I was not aware of his support of artists of color. Now, I would go sometimes to New York, stay with my relatives, pound the pavement in Manhattan, try, you know, try to get work as a teenager. And I would go over to his house on Long Island. And he would fix, you know, uh, his wife would fix um, lunch for us. And he'd give me some, you know, things that I thought were just great, which were original examples of his own work over, over the decades. Now, what he told me was that he infuriated his neighbors on Long Island one time by having black artists over for art lessons. 
So he he had a liberal uh, sensibility, and I think he, what he did was admirable. Obviously, you studied with him for quite some time. Insofar as you're able to really, I guess, offer the digest version of it, what did you what did you learn from him? Oh, where did I learn from Laurier? You know, I stayed in touch with him all the way through college. Every time I published an editorial cartoon or an illustration or anything, I would send it to him, and he would write me back some feedback on it. This was all during the late 60s, even into the early 70s, when I was working on my doctorate at Stony Brook University on Long Island. Uh, My ex-wife and I, uh, with our new baby, went by his house, and he was writing novels uh, also under pseudonyms. And at that time, you know, I tried to help him get one of his novels published, but that didn't happen. You also crossed paths with Charles Barsotti of The New Yorker. In the write-up of the book, it it, it says he's a he was a mentor for you. Is that an accurate assessment? Oh, that's an interesting word to use, mentor. I told you I, I would go to New York as a teenager and pound the pavement, you know, trying to get work. So I'd call up editors, and they would all give me an opportunity to speak with them. One of those young editors at the time, late 60s, uh, really mid-60s, was Charles Barsotti. And he met with me, and a friend of his who was a cartoonist dropped by. Afterwards, he wrote to me, because they had been discussing me, and he said that, you know, I could do things as a cartoonist, black cartoonist, that he and his friend would not dare touch, okay? And I thought about that, and I said, I, I really don't know what he's talking about. But about three, four years later, I uh, attended a lecture on campus by Mary Baraka, um, formerly Leroy Jones, where he said to the black students in the audience, take your talent back to the black community. And that really resonated with me. It connected with what Barsani had said earlier. I suddenly realized no one was really working with black history and black culture in terms of comic art. Um, there were some other black cartoons were out there, um, but, you know, and I was one of them. I think there was about seven of us publishing in uh, Black World and Ebony and Jet Magazine. But I devoted myself to that for three books, at least. And samples of those books are in the new book, All Your Racial Problems Will Soon End. So prior to attending that lecture, your stuff was a little broader. Uh, It didn't have a specific audience in mind. Well, you know, I was a professional. That's one of the things I admired. You asked earlier about Lawyer. He was prolific and he was a professional. Uh, My idea of a professional is that you can take on any assignment that you're given. And so for my college paper, for a paper in Southern Illinois called the Southern Illinoisan or the Chicago Tribune, any assignment, I would take it on. But, you know, it was not race-themed, um, any of those assignments. So what, what got me focused on Black history and culture was the Baraka lecture that I heard and the advice given to me by Barsadi a few years earlier. So it wasn't so much that you were shying away from the material, but, but more that, I guess, it hadn't really even occurred to you at that point that that was something you could really focus on. Not really. No, no. I was just working as a professional cartoonist and illustrator. I've read you talk a little bit about that experience of seeing Henry Baraka that you just mentioned. You refer to, to 
black humor um, in terms of the, the, the sorts of things that you were writing, how, how would you, aside from, you know, I guess the very obvious fact that it, it is, you know, folk uh, uh, that the, the audience is black people and the, the artist is black. What, what is, how would you define black humor? Well, that's the title of the first book that came out in 1970. That was the same year. I had an early PBS show teaching people how to draw called Charlie's Pad. And that ran for about a, about 10 years, actually, around the country. Um, black humor, I chose that title because it has a kind of double meaning. It can be humor by, by and about black people. But black humor back then also meant humor that was a little edgy, right? Gallows humor. Yes, gallows humor, exactly. So, yeah, those, those two meanings resonate beneath, these, uh, beneath the title of the first book. At the beginning of the conversation, you alluded to, I think, having to switch your, your role or switch your job, or I guess your focus perhaps three times. And I know that that's certainly that was reflected in what you ultimately ended up studying. I, I think, I believe you did undergrad in journalism and got your PhD in philosophy. Is that right? That's right. Yes. It sounds like the reason for choosing journalism initially is was, was pragmatic. Somebody <laughs> nudged you in that direction because this was something that you could perhaps potentially actually make a, a living doing. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, journalism gave me the opportunity to both write and draw for publication. And that's what I was really interested in was publishing. Uh, but journalism teaches a number of virtues as well. You have to uh, work towards a deadline. You have to try to reach a broad audience. Um, you know that your copy is not sacred, okay, or, or, or written in stone because it's going across the room to the editor. You learn virtues um, about writing, for example, from, from uh, studying as a journalist and working as a journalist. Think about it for a second. I taught in an MFA program for 33 years, but there were no MFA programs before World War II. So where did writers learn their craft? They learned their craft largely by working on newspapers. Um, Hemingway is, of course, the classic example. Yeah, uh, and, and other writers as well. So when I got my journalism degree, I gave it to my dad. I said, here, this is, this is for you. It proves that I can make a living, okay, if I have to. However, I'm staying in school because philosophy has become one of my passions, and that's for me. It's funny that transition from, you know, as, as I said, pragmatic to something that at least tends to be viewed as not being especially helpful in terms of entering the workaday world. I mean, you know, that's kind of the, that's the joke, right? Is the, is the, the one safe career that you have studying philosophy is as a philosophy professor. Yeah, if you get a degree in philosophy, the question is, well, how are you going to make a living? Most people, you, it used to be the case, would get a job teaching philosophy. But one of the things I learned over the course of my life is that all of the arts are interrelated, whether we're talking about the visual arts, the literary arts, or philosophy itself, which can be an art form in the hands of the right creative philosophers. Um, so, yeah, it, it's always a question in, in all of the arts. How am I going to make a living? So for you specifically, in, in terms of the work that you did after earning your PhD, how did those learnings end up manifesting themselves? After I got my PhD, well, by that time, I was hired 
uh, as an English professor at the University of Washington. And uh, I worked very hard. I taught very hard. If you want to know what I taught, there's a book called The Way of the Writer that uh, brings together everything I taught uh, to my creative writing students for 33 years. Um, so I had a tenured professor job uh, until nine years ago when I retired from teaching. Specifically, what did you learn in, in the philosophy course and how did that kind of matriculate into your own creative work? Well, that's a good question. Um, let me back up to when I started as a journalism student, right? In 1966, there was a requirement at the school I went to that uh, journalism majors had to take a logic course. It was required. And then you had an elective uh, that you had to take as well. And when I took the logic course, it blew my mind. It was absolutely everything I needed, <laughs> you know, uh, to, to un unravel poor argument arguments, for example. Now, you see, my teachers felt this way. If you're going to be a journalist, you need to know something about logical fallacies because 90% of things you're going to hear uh, from politicians and others is going to involve a logical fallacy of some kind. So that course was eye-opening for me as well as the other course I took as an elective, uh, which was on the pre-Socratic philosophers, and that seduced me. The pre-Socratic philosophers were concerned with three things that I knew I was concerned with. One is, what is the good, what is the true, and what is the beautiful? So that, that was what seduced me, you know, at age 18 and made me realize I have to stay with this and keep doing it, and all the way through a doctorate. And it, it is a way of life, you know. Uh, philosophy is a way of life, if you look at the life of, you know, Socrates. And also being an artist is a way of life. It's a way of being in the world. It's a way of looking at the world, processing it, and coming up with the best expressions that you can that might represent goodness, truth, or beauty in some way. So you feel that those two ways of being in the world are especially comp complementary with one another? Absolutely. I do. Absolutely. If you look at a book that I love, it's called The Writer's Brush. Um, Painting, Sculpture, and uh, what was it called? Uh, Drawing, Painting, and Sculpture by Writers. The editor is Don Friedman. You're gonna, it's going to blow your mind because it's 200 years worth of writers and, you know, who also were artists. You know, you, there's, there's visual art there by Tennessee Williams. There's visual art by Harriet Beecher Stowe, by um, John Updike. He was a cartoonist. I'm in there. I have two pages. And what you see is that the creative spirit is not, cannot be contained, you know, in, in a little box. Although we try to do that to people. We say, oh, that person, oh, he's a novelist, right? Or, or this person, eh, well, she writes poetry. That person, these people we're talking about, one day might wake up and write a poem. But then the next day they might say, you know, I think I might try a short story. Or the third day they might say, this, say to themselves, you know, I'm thinking about the mind-body problem. I have a mind, I have a body, I'm thinking about that. Well, let me write an essay and see if I can clarify for myself, you know, the nature of the mind-body uh, paradox. That book, The Writer's Brush, gives you a sense of how global in uh, a person's life these art forms and these philosophical questions can be. You don't need me to tell you this, but you're, you're absolutely right in that we 
and I don't know if this is the case that this has only gotten worse over time, but that we really silo these skill sets and these different mediums. But it sounds like in more abstract way, effectively what you're describing is content dictating form. I it's an interesting way to put it. Content dictates form. Can, can you elaborate on that a little bit? Effectively, it's the idea that the creative output that you're doing, you, you use whatever medium is the most effective to get that idea across. Oh, that is, absol- that is absolutely right. That is absolutely right. There are certain ideas that would be best expressed as an essay and other ideas that would be best expressed as, say, a philosophical novel. Or, and I can't do this, but I have friends who are poets, some ideas are best expressed as, as poems. Now, I think poets have a particular cognitive style. <laughs> you know, they see the world in such a way and use language in such a way um, that they can capture something differently than a prose writer like myself, you know, being trained as a journalist and, you know, being a novelist later. But yeah, that I like that phrasing that you used. Something that really dawned on me recently, or at least I feel that I've come to truly understand in a way that I hadn't before, is the importance of symbolism in painting and metaphor, specifically in poetry or music. That I, I think these two notions are really complementary in that the real drive there is to find a way to touch upon something or describe something that is difficult or even impossible to describe in words. Oh, absolutely. Yes. I, I, well, look at my book, The Way of the Writer. I have a chapter on metaphor. And I, there's a cha- that chapter is there because metaphor is one of the ways that we make sense out of the world. You know, it, it's fundamental to our knowledge, to, to epistemology, you know, seeing a similarity between two things. You know, Aristotle was of the opinion that creating metaphor is not something you can teach someone. It's like a gift. It, it, it's like genius, uh, where you think about two things and you see a connection between them. As a cartoonist, uh, I rely, and other cartoonists do as well, on visual metaphors, where you bring, you know, two th- you show a similarity between two things or bring two things together. So I won't speak to I won't speak to symbolism, but metaphor is central to our uh, uh, to our our quest for knowledge, to the very way we think. That's interesting. This this idea that you you can't teach metaphor. I'm obviously, you know, you taught writing for a long time, and I'm certainly going to check out this book, the writing book after this conversation. But as a someone who writes for a living myself, you know, I've always sort of somewhat been of the opinion that aside from kind of the fundamentals, you know, learning, learning the English language, learning syntax, that it's difficult, if not impossible to really teach writing. Well, I think other people, well, the, uh, the Europeans have that view too. The idea that you could teach writing seems, um, illogical to them, that, that it's uh, something you're bored with the capacity to do. But that that is not exactly true. You can teach the fundamentals in the toolbox of writing a short story to, to students. And it doesn't take a lot to do because the tools that we have are, are very, you know, it's just a few. You know, it's things like plot and character and dialogue and scene. But the infinite number of ways that you can apply that, of course, 
you know, it, 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 it could go on forever. So you can't teach, you can't teach certain basic fundamentals of writing, but you can't teach two things. You can't teach imagination and you can't teach talent. The student has to bring that into the room. Obviously, you, you also taught drawing. You, as, as you mentioned before, you, you hosted this uh, public television series, Charlie's Pad. And I think writing similar in that obvious, or excuse me, I think drawing similar in that obviously there's a certain degree of talent that you need to bring to the table that you can't teach. But it does seem on the face of it to be perhaps easier to teach something like drawing because it's, it's a bit less abstract. Perhaps, perhaps. Uh, I think, I, yeah, I talked to people on television uh, back in the early days when PBS was called Educational TV. I taught people the basics of drawing, and I used my course that I took for two years with Lawrence Larrier. That's where I took the lessons from. So you, you can teach certain basic things, uh, but, but you can't teach imagination. You know, forget about that. The student has to have that. So, you know, and the same with writing. You you can't, you know, the person just has to have that. I know you said before that you're a, a, a very visual thinker when, even when you're writing a novel, for example, when it, when it comes to sort of sitting down and woodshedding a piece of prose, is there, is there a role that your artistic, that your drawing talents can play in that process? Well, again, you know, I talk about this in the way of the writer in uh, the chapter on craft and revision. I do think, um, visually you know i see things in my mind's eye you know visually so the question is how do you get that on the page in you know in in writing now it's also true most of us think visually we have several senses right and the eye is the dominant one we we don't talk about you know we we will say things like oh i see what you're talking about you know or i see the truth we don't say i hear the truth or i smell the truth or i taste the truth right the other senses are less developed. So I know one of the things I challenge myself to do, since the visual image comes to me easily, is try to work with the other senses. Think about Sinclair, I think it's, I think it's Sinclair Lewis's um, book, The Jungle, yeah. in which he, he describes the Chicago stockyards. It was meatpacking, wasn't it? Yes, that's right. Meatpacking. He describes it through smell. Uh, the characters smell it before they get there. And this is, you know, that's a wonderful example of using one of the other senses to to help the reader, you know, enter into the story powerfully. I have to assume that the process of, in a lot of ways, right? I mean, this sounds very obvious now that I say it out loud, but that the process of writing a novel is very different than drawing a, a gag strip from, you know, specifically because there is a little more immediate gratification in the, in the gag strip in that, you know, you, you come up with a concept, you come up with a joke, and then you could just pretty quickly put that out into the world. Oh, yeah, yeah. One of my friends is editorial cartoonist David Horsey, who has received two Pulitzer Prizes, you know, as an editorial cartoonist. And we were talking, and he's writing a novel now, too. But he said, you know, it's different. Because as an editorial cartoonist, he was used to instant gratification. It doesn't take that long to do a drawing, and then it's published in the newspaper, you know, the next day or the day after. A novel, on the other hand, can take years. 
years of revision. My novels go anywhere, the last three from, oh gosh, five years in composition, six years in composition, seven years in composition. My rate of throwaway to keep pages can be 20 to 1 easily. So it is a different process. And yeah, and you get used to it. You know, you you, you can switch gears. It sounds like the, the rate at which you're able to write a novel is only expanding over time. I take more time with every novel. And the reason for that is because I usually do a lot of research. Um, I did six years of research on literature of the sea and the maritime tradition to write my novel, Middle Passage, that won the 1990 National Book Award. The novel I, I did uh, before that, uh, I, I spent a lot of time researching slavery for that novel called Oxfording Tale. And for the most, the, the last novel I did called Dreamer, which is about the last two li- uh, years in the life of Martin Luther King Jr., I spent seven years um, researching him and the civil rights movement. I spent about a fifth of my life, actually on writing a, a novel about King, short stories, essays, giving lectures um, around the country on his holiday, you know, in January. So I, I, I take more time. My very first novel, Faith in the Good Thing, I wrote in nine months, uh, which I thought was a, you know, a long period of time to do anything. But after that, I realized what was at stake, you know, that this, this work can, can really bring joy to others, it can, it, it can last for generations. And so it's important to get it right, despite how many drafts you might have to do. So I do a lot of research, as much as for a dissertation for the novels that I do. Also, for a lot of people, myself included, the, the process of doing research is, is a very fulfilling one. Yes, it is, because you're learning. You know, with every novel that I do, I'm a different person when I finish it. I don't come out of it as clean as when I began because I'm going to have to learn new things. I'm going, and every work of art is different, you know, than the, than the previous one that you did. There are different problems that you have to solve. So the ideal is that the writer is changed by the creative process of doing a novel, you know, an ambitious philosophical novel, and the reader will be transformed too. He or she won't come out of the experience of that novel as clean as they went in. Especially in the case of, of researching and writing about slavery. I mean, that can, that must have a, a pretty dramatic impact on your psyche. Yeah, it does. You know, it, it really does. I, I wrote 12 stories <clears throat> for a uh, book called Africans in America. It's a history book. It's probably the only time a creative writer has been asked to uh, write stories to dramatize the historical record. Africans in America, that book was the companion piece to the PBS series, four-part series in 1998, called Africans in America. And those stories, I, I did them in a month. Uh, I kept putting them off because I knew what was going to happen to me, what I was going to have to do to myself in order to write those 12 stories. I had to imagine what it's like to be a slave and also what it's like to be a master. And the emotions that I knew I was going to have to uh, work with, anger, hatred, despair, they would have an an impact on me. So I wrote three stories a week for a month just to get it done. However, I still have scar tissue 
emotional scar tissue from having had to immerse myself in that experience and try to write authentically about the slavery era. Earlier, you used the phrase a philosophical novel, and you know certainly that's something that I've encountered a lot. It's my mind always goes to Voltaire. I love Voltaire. <laughs> uh, yeah, Candide. Uh, that's one of my favorite stories. Yeah, and and it's and it's clear the way in which that is uh, Candide specifically is is philosophical in that there's yes. a philosophy that just repeats over and over again throughout the course of the book. But what is what does it mean to you for a novel or a work to be philosophical? Well, if you look at my four novels, each one of them has a philosophical question at the center. In Faith in the Good Thing, it's the question of what is the good? And that's Plato's question, right? In my novel, Oxfording Tale, the question is, what is the self? And that was important to me because I'm a practicing Buddhist. And I think about what is the self all the time. In Middle Passage, uh, the question was, where is home? And with the novel about King, Dreamer, the question is, or was, how do you end social evil without creating new social evil? Now, some of those are traditional questions in philosophy. You know, what is the good, for example? So I, I think a philosophical novel will touch upon those perennial questions that philosophers are continually asking, and perhaps some new questions as well that emerge out of our time, you know, in our experience. You mentioned Candide, and it is such a hilarious story because it is such a repudiation of the philosophy of Leibniz, who said, we live in the best of all possible worlds. And Candide discovers just the... Opposite. Yeah, he has a rough time about it, <laughs> Yeah, I remember correctly. Yeah, no, it, it's yeah, Voltaire. It's a wonderful story. Um, and uh, I would like to think in certain ways that my fir first novel, Faith in the Good Thing, has a protagonist who is Candide-like uh, in her innocence, that same way as Candide. Yeah, it's a little bit like Job in a way. Oh, yeah. Yeah, the character suffers and suffers and suffers. Although it's specifically in this case, it is uh, to a certain extent for comedic effect. Yes. Just a little different than Job, I suppose. <laughs> yes. So so effectively the this question is the the thing that you hang the narrative on top of. Yes. If I'm going to work on a novel for 5 years, 6 years, 7 years, I have to have a question that is alive for me. A question that I think about every day. You know, that I get up thinking about, go into bed thinking about, um that question will sustain me and I don't come out of the novel having answered the question and closing the door, but rather exploring the question. You know, what is the good? What is the self? Um, where is home? Um, and how do we end evil without engendering or creating new evil? Those are perennial questions. So a novel for me is a meditation on uh, traditional philosophical questions and maybe some new questions that pertain to our era. There's a something you write in in this new collection that really jumped out at me. And I, I suppose there, there's a way in which I, I've had some trouble kind of reconciling it in my own brain. I really wanted to know, you just, you discuss this very formative time in your life and, you know, also just being in the sixties in general, that old Marxism and Eastern philosophy were in their ascendancy um, in, in the U S or at least in, you know, 
college classrooms. But at one point, you say that mindfulness training proved to be antithetical to Marxism, and I, and I can't quite figure that one out. Oh, well, it, it's not so hard. You know, in the late 60s, uh, that was, well, the 60s, that was when Marxism and Buddhism entered into the college curriculum. That's also when black studies started uh, around 1968. Uh, so there were new disciplines, new programs, women's studies, right? entered into the curriculum as well by the early 70s. So that was the atmosphere in which I was moving as a young man, you know, in my late teens and early 20s. And for a period, a short period, I was attracted to Marxism and uh, studied it, did my master's thesis on Wilhelm Reich and how he was influenced uh, by Freud and, uh, and Marx. And then at Stony Brook, as a teaching assistant, I taught a course called, called Radical Thought. But since my teens, I had had a, a real attraction to uh, Eastern philosophy. I, I first practiced meditation when I was 14. And I didn't take it up again until I was like maybe 32. But I studied Eastern philosophy right along with, with Marxism and everything else, Hinduism, Buddhism, Taoism. And I came to the realization um, that, no, those two are antithetical, okay, Marxism and Buddhism. And I can give you one quick reason why. Buddhism, Buddhism is non-dualistic. Marxism is very dualistic. In the same sense, in the same way that Christianity is very dualistic. Buddhism is not about I versus thou. It, it, it is about Non, non-dualism. It is also about metta, or loving kindness towards all sentient beings. It is a spiritual practice that informs my days every day. I sat in meditation briefly before we started to do this interview. And that was to put out in my head everything that had been going on for the you know, past few days, everything I'm going to do after our interview is over, so I can be here completely. 100% in the present moment with you. I'm not in the past. I'm not in the, you know, in the future, but right here, 100%. Uh, Buddhism is a philosophy. It is also a, a method. Um, it has some similarities to what I concentrated on after my Marxist period, um, some similarities to phenomenology. It is a philosophy of consciousness. Uh, both are philosophies of consciousness, phenomenology and Buddhism. Yeah, I, I suppose part of the confusion on my end stems from, and I know that obviously socialism and Marxism aren't one and the same, but no. certainly, certainly there's a, an extent to which socialism is complementary in that it is, you know, that, that it is sort of. I guess that, that that at least theoretically the philosophy that drives it is is more economic equality for more of the masses. I guess you could say that you're talking about socialism. You know, Martin Luther King Jr. Martin Luther King Jr. towards the end of his life uh, was a socialist when he uh, went to Europe to you know accept the uh, Nobel Peace Prize. He went through European countries that were established on the basis of socialism. He was very impressed. When he came back, he, he felt uh, that in America, you, we should have a uh, 
guaranteed income, you know, uh, for people. Uh, I see our country is not totally capitalist. You know, there are elements of socialism already in, in our you know, economic life. Um, but King told his staff members not to be afraid of the word socialism. I'm also really interested in your meditation practice specifically because I finally, and this is very recent, you know, last three or four months after years and years of trying and banging my head against the wall, I'm finally at a point where I, I do have a daily meditation practice. You know, I'm, I'm somebody who's very prone to anxiety and, um, at least when you're starting out, anxiety and, and meditation don't really get along very well. No. Well, this is excellent. I recommend a spiritual practice to everybody. I don't care what tradition it is. It doesn't have to be Buddhism. But it is a dimension that I think is absolutely crucial in our lives, which can be very stressful uh, and, very un, you know, and very uncertain. Um, uh, this is good. This is good. Um, uh, say a little bit more about it. I'm ethnically Jewish, and I, I grew up Jewish, and uh, like like a lot of American Jews, I was I was drawn to Buddhism. It was something that I read a lot about. I was interested in, and at various points in my life, I have tried to sit. Um, but when you're prone to anxiety the way that I am, it it becomes a really frustrating process because in in, in a way more thoughts flood into your mind as you're trying to silence them. And it was really difficult for me to sit for longer than five or 10 minutes. And it was difficult for me to get to a point wherein I I used to, when I was sitting, I used to feel anxious and I used to really eagerly wait for the, the, I use a little, uh, an an app that has a bell. I used to wait for the bell to ring because, you know, it would mean that I could like get up and not meditate anymore. And now I'm at a point where the bell rings and I feel like I could, Keep going. Oh yeah, oh yeah. I, I, when I'm sitting, I can stay there and not get up off the cushion <laughs> for a long time. Um, Jewish Americans have been very uh, important for the uh, development of what we might call American Buddhism. Uh, you know, as con as convert Buddhists, uh, sometimes uh, Jewish Americans call themselves Jubus, <laughs> right? And and the magazines that I contribute to. Um, uh, uh, Tricycle, you know, the, the Buddhist Review and Lion's Roar uh, have, were started by people who were, who were Jewish. Um, I think what we're, see, I, and I was, I'm a convert of uh, Buddhist too, you know, unlike someone from Asia, you know, like it, who grew up with Buddhism, like in you know, Thailand, for example, uh, Theravada Buddhism. I was a cradle Christian. I, I grew up in a black church. Uh, the AME, African Methodist Episcopal Church. And I have appreciation for all for the positive aspects of all religions. Uh, someone once <laughs> told me that they felt I was like a Unitarian. There's, there's wisdom to be found in every, I believe, religion. Um, but everybody, I think, should have a spiritual practice of some kind that will give them an anchor every day and help them restore their perspective on what is important. And, and for example, you know, uh, you, you say you had a feeling of anxiety. Well, we learn as Buddhists how to let go, how to let go of our goals, 
like, you know, oh, I, I want to make progress in meditation. No, no, you don't worry about that. You simply sit. And there, I've been meditating for 41 years now. And one of the things that happens is that, okay, the cushion is great when I'm sitting, but when I get up, that same consciousness has to follow me throughout the entire day. I'm always in a state of meditation in one way or another. I have found it very useful because of my anxiety, wherein there are moments that would cause me to tense up um, or would cause me to kind of retreat. And there's a feeling that you can tap into throughout the day once you leave your seat uh, that are that, that that's really useful for 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 making it through those tense moments absolutely and if you don't have time for a formal sit then you have the mantra that you can quietly go over in your mind in those tense situations you know again this is why my uh second novel oxerding tale has a central question of what is the self so when you're feeling tense and anxious Ask yourself, who feels tense <laughs> and anxious? And it's just a moment. It's just an episode of, of uh, consciousness. It will pass. Because as Buddhists, we realize everything is impermanent, including our thoughts. A thought may arise in consciousness that causes anxiety. But if you take uh, uh, equilibrium and just look at it, just look at it and let it play out, it will go away and be replaced by another. And pretty soon, you can control your thoughts. You can, you can bring forth joy at any moment. You can let negative feelings and so forth. It's okay to have them. You know? They're not you. <laughs> All right? It's just what consciousness does. It throws up anxiety or fear or joy. And you can hang on and nurture the positive emotions and uh, feelings and thoughts and let the other ones pass. You know, let them go. One of the interesting things that I've discovered in the process of of doing this show specifically is the way that me meditation manifests itself differently for a lot of people. Um, obviously, it's once again very in vogue to to discuss things like meditation and and mindfulness. And and I will have this conversation with people from time to time, and they'll tell me that I, I had a country musician on, and he told me that you know that he doesn't meditate in any kind of formal way but that when he's when he's in the shower he breathes differently and th and that's that's been very useful and interesting to me is realizing that there are th that there are other ways to have that connection that don't necessarily involve sitting oh yeah oh well i could talk about this for a, a very long time because um if you look at meditation uh, and it is preceded by concentration. Diana and Diana, Diana, Diana. I think that's correct. It's preceded by uh, concentration, and an awful lot of what happens with the creative process involves concentration. If you're really focused on something, whether it's a mantra or it's a yantra, um, you you forget yourself. You're, because your your consciousness is focused on that object. Similarly, when you're creating a story or when you're doing a drawing, you forget yourself. The self is not there. 
Okay, when we concentrate in the arts, it is very similar to the way we concentrate uh, prior to meditation. Uh, so all of these things regarding consciousness are linked. You know, they're, they're all in many ways part of the same flow uh, process. I hear a lot of people discuss the creative process as being meditative. And, and I think there's an extent to which that is a little bit a little bit of a cliche and, and perhaps is a little bit overstated, but certainly there are people that really enter this creative space wherein they feel like they're almost channeling something external. Yeah. Yeah. I've heard that. <laughs> um, yeah. Oh, well I can relate to it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there are stories that I wrote in one sitting that just flowed out of me. Uh, and, and I had tears in my eyes, you know, at the very end of it. This was a long time ago, back in the 70s when I was a younger writer. But this is what I think draws us back to the creative process. It, it involves self-discovery. It involves a concentration and focus, unlike what we find during the normal course of the day, right? Um, you know, it, 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 there, there is something uh, revelatory about the creative process. And meditation as well. Yeah, I, I, I had forgotten about this um, un until you mentioned writing in a flurry or writing, you know, writing an entire story in one sitting. The you discuss it a little bit in the book. I, I can't remember which which of the collections it is, but that one of them really was written in this this really just this quick space that you a very short period of time. Do you, do you find that that you do or that you have kind of that, that your creativity works that way and in, in fits and starts? Well, I tend to be a, a binge writer, particularly if you're talking about novels, you can't write a whole novel in one sitting, right? Uh, I like five years, six years, seven years. And in my case, but for short fiction, there were two occasions when I had brought such emotion to the story that it was, it really just flowed out of me. To you know, from the first sentence to to the very end, I I haven't had that experience since. But it is it, it's mysterious, and I like to have to retain that sense of mystery in the creative process. I don't like to over-explain it. You know, I think it's important sometimes to simply surrender surrender to it. You know, and and you will find discovery. Those are the two things I think that every work that we do, uh, literary work particularly, but anything we do uh, involves. Those two things are discovery, with every, something new with every artwork that you do, and also problem solving, because every work that you do is different from the last work that you did. So you can do this, you know, uh, with joy for 70-something years, as I've done. You mentioned... Um Dan Nadell a, f a few times in the in the text specifically a he I'm I'm you know I've I know him and I I know of his work and I you know I know that he he does a really great job curating it sounds like the 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 impetus or at least kind of the initial drive behind this book was a uh, was an art show that you were involved in that that he put together ha that having happened and this book being out now do you feel do you feel invigorated? Do you feel more of a connection with your cartooning? Well, it's interesting because I began as a cartoonist 
1970, my first book was Black Humor. And now, over 50 years later, <laughs> you know, we have another cartoon collection. So this book, All Your Racial Problems Will Soon End, takes me all the way back. It completes a circle. It takes me all the way back to my teens and childhood. And, and there's something deeply rewarding about You know, some of these drawings I were done so long ago, I don't remember doing them. I don't. I can't remember, you know, what was on my mind when I, I did that one. But it's wonderful. Um, uh, Lucas Adams, my editor, restored so many of these drawings for which I only had not the original art, but rather a Xerox of the art. And he restored it so it looks as polished as the original did. Um, I'm really in debt to, to Lucas and, and to Nick uh, for making, the, making this book happen. It's a miracle. Let me put it that way. For me, this book is a miracle, and I really hope that readers enjoy it. You know, uh, There's a lot of younger readers who don't remember or weren't, weren't born in the late 60s or early 70s. And so there's black history and American history there, right? And, and black American culture in those drawings. And then they come forward in time because I kept drawing, doing freelance work to the present moment. And the book ends with the kind of Zen-oriented cartoons that I, I enjoy doing. And, you know, at the very back of the book, there's cartoons that, you know, make you laugh about things related to Hinduism and Buddha Dharma. 